Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Deseret News reports that guns once again were a contentious issue on Capitol Hill during the legislature's 45-day session. After several tries through the years, lawmakers succeeded in ending the permit requirement for carrying a concealed weapon in Utah. House Bill 60 lets any Utah resident who's 21 years or older and can legally possess a firearm to carry their weapon concealed without needing a permit. Legislature also passed House Bill 216, sponsored by Representative Carrie Ann Lisenby, a Republican from Syracuse. It allows for a provisional permit to be sought by people within 90 days of their 21st birthday to show they've received concealed carry training required for a full permit. We're going to talk about Utah's new gun laws uh, with Representative Karen Lisby right now and later in this hour, Nika Algood from Moms Demand Action and Nancy Farr-Halden with Gun Violence Prevention Center of Utah. Representative Lisby, welcome to the program. Hello, thank you. Good to have you with us. Um, so, uh, I want to definitely talk about House Bill 216. You were the sponsor, right? Um, I want to start with House Bill 60. Did you, did you support this measure? Yes, I did. Uh, so this would, um, uh, allow, uh, people to, uh, carry a concealed weapon without needing a, uh, a permit. Um, why do you think this was needed? So it's, it's really interesting. There's a, really a, just a small minority of people in states that have already passed permitless carry that don't continue to obtain their concealed carry permit through the state um, that will carry concealed with the permitless carry provision. But it is the Second Amendment is a fundamental right, and I believe that people shouldn't have to ask permission of the state to carry concealed in order to defend themselves. And all of the other rules still apply. They're still required to not be a prohibited person, to be, own the gun that they're carrying, and et cetera. So I, I think it's a good bill. I think it's a common-sense bill, and I supported the measure. Now, Utah has reciprocal agreements, I believe, right, with, with quite a few other states. Um, That's correct. And I understand that, uh, at least for some of those states, uh, you'll still have to get the, the permit if you want to have reciprocal permits in other states. Yes, that's one of the benefits of having the permit. Another one is being able to carry on K-12 school grounds. And it's interesting, Idaho uh, this past, this year, passed a provision to allow teachers um, to carry in schools. And Utah has had that provision since 1999. And a lot of people don't know that about Utah, but teachers and anybody with a concealed carry permit can carry in a K-12 school in Utah. And so I think that's an important thing for us to understand with these egregious shootings that are happening all over the United States, that Utah hasn't experienced that, and our teachers are armed and, and ready to defend themselves and their students. Do you believe that's a big reason why Utah hasn't had uh, these shootings? Do you, do you think that goes through the mind of a potential perpetrator? Yeah, I, well, I do think it's interesting that a lot of the mass shootings that happen happen in gun-free zones and happen where the individual wants to create the most damage possible and doesn't want somebody to be able to shoot back. And so um, I think that these individuals that that do this are cowards, and I think that um, they try to avoid places where they know that they can be stopped. And so I, th- I think that Utah's gun laws are really good at addressing that issue. 
Uh, Senator Hinkins, um, uh, floor sponsor in the, in the Senate um, of House Bill 60, uh, stressed that the safety training will still be available. Um, and the training includes instruction on suicide prevention. Um, is, that a preven- uh, is that a provision you uh, support? Absolutely. You know, I actually worked with um, Senator or Representative Ellison uh, and the House sponsor. We were talking one day during the session, and Senator Ellison said, you know, I, I have some reservations because I, he was the one that ran the bill that required the, the suicide prevention module to be added to the concealed carry classes. And so I loved that he did that. I think it's an important education for everybody who takes the class. And so I said, well, why don't we take some of the money that BCI has in reserve because BCI has a lot of money from permit holders that they are holding and um, divert that to suicide prevention efforts. And so the sponsor of the bill actually was friendly to that amendment, and and Representative Ellison liked it and and ran a sub, and so that that did happen. And I think that was an important change to HB sixty this year, and shows that we are cognizant and want to make sure that people are educated and aware. So, if the if the training is uh, beneficial and uh, elements of it that you consider important, uh, then why make it optional? Well, like I said at the beginning of the conversation, the training um, in general is very cursory. It goes through the laws. It goes through um, general mechanics of gun ownership, but it does not. And and then the suicide prevention module, which I do think is very, very important. But most people who are going to conceal carry, in fact, I would venture to say all, will train themselves. And I believe in, in Utah, we believe in personal responsibility. And I think that that the people in general will train themselves and probably train themselves way better than the cursory four-hour training that they would get in a concealed carry class. And so that one element, the suicide prevention, that I think we, we probably don't get enough of in Utah because of our high suicide rates is something that we wanted to make sure that we maintained and and kept for people who are not obtaining a permit. But other than that, I think people do educate themselves in in a greater degree than the class does. So your bill, House Bill 216, what would this do? So 216 was actually a cleanup bill. We discovered over the interim last year that there was an inadvertent uh, omission of a code section in my bill that I ran in 2017 that created the uh, provisional permit for 18 to 20-year-olds. And so we reinstated that code section, and then we created a process where the provisional permit would last as long as the regular permit lasts, because currently if somebody gets it on their 18th birthday, it would expire on their 21st birthday, and the regular permit lasts for five years. And so we wanted to create a process because it costs the same and the requirements are the same that it would last the five years. And so we added a small fee of $10, and if the person applies to BCI prior to their 21st birthday, then BCI will just automatically, with a $10 fee, send them a regular permit on their 21st birthday that would expire if they received their initial permit at 18 at uh, 
two years after that. So it, it would last a total of five years. And then um, BCI can just track how long that permit lasts and expire it, and they can reapply for their regular permit again. So that was, that's, that was just a cleanup bill. I also ran um, HB 2. 27, that was a um, actually not very much talked about in the media or um, in other areas, but it was probably one of the most important firearms bills of the session after HB 60. Uh, uh, yes. Um, so tell us about uh, 227. It was 227? Yes. Yeah, so that bill um, was a... Uh, it was a bill that created a legal process for a person who has defended themselves with their firearm so that, um, or with, with any deadly weapon, that they would not have to necessarily go through a traumatic and expensive jury trial when they would then be exonerated and simply, um, you know, have had been exonerated because they were defending themselves and, and acting in self-defense. So it moves that up, and the, the individual that acted in self-defense can motion in a for a pretrial hearing, and the prosecution, the, the burden falls on the state to prove that they were not acting in self-defense. So it, that's a very important stand-your-ground. We, uh, law, we copied a lot of what... Um, is in Florida's law. So Utah is now the only other state besides Florida to have this provision. And um, we in in Utah omitted certain crimes um, because of concerns with victims groups. And we want to make sure that we were protecting those victims and we'll, we'll keep a, an eye on the law and how it's functioning and, and update it in the future if we need to. But uh, so opponents to uh, to two sixteen are characterizing it this way. They they say this is, would be a bill to force colleges and universities to allow eighteen to twenty one year olds to carry guns on campus. Is that an accurate characterization? So actually, um, it, it's interesting. There's been some misinformation even about HB sixty and its effect on college campus carry, but. Um, I asked for information from our legislative research team on that. And and 216, like I said, is just a cleanup bill. I passed the 18-year-old carry bill for the express purpose of college campus carry for our young people to be able to protect themselves, like Lauren McCluskey or others who have been egregiously harmed, and, and they need to be able to defend themselves. That's a fundamental right that goes back to English common law and before. And so... Uh, so I believe that um, that it is important, and, and HB 216 doesn't actually enact that. HB, um, I can't remember what the number was of my original provisional carry uh, bill, but the there was one code section that was missing, and our legislative research found that code section missing, and so that's why we were putting it back in, but the legislative intent was clearly there to allow college campus carry. Now, HB 216 passed with bipartisan support in both bodies. Um, I believe it was almost unanimous in both bodies in every vote. So that bill wasn't controversial during the session. I'm not sure who's expressing concern now other than than maybe those who just don't like people to have Second Amendment rights. Mm -hmm. 
No, we just have you for another couple of minutes. You have to get going here pretty quick. But um, I want to address maybe nationally. We've had a a series of uh, of, of shootings. This is uh, it seems to be you know at least lately coming very frequently. What's the solution? Do you think? Well, you know, it's really interesting. I I think, and I grew up with guns in in our house, and they were not locked in safes, and there were guns in, in the back of people's trucks at high school, and they were not stolen and brought into the school, and we never heard of a school shooting back, you know, when I was growing up. And, and so there were definitely guns available, but there weren't school shootings. And so I think it's more than just the existence of guns and the availability of guns and the ownership of guns. I think this is a mental health issue. I think we have some issues in this nation with mental health, with um, with individuals uh, seeing and copycatting these other shootings. Uh, I know that we've seen some correlational data on that from university studies. And so um, I think it's a huge problem, but I, I don't think taking away guns from law-abiding citizens solves the problem. Well, no, I we... think we have to address the mental health perspectives. All right. Well, uh, thank you so much. Uh, we've had Representative Carrie Ann Lisenby, a Republican from Syracuse, on uh, with us. Uh, appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much. Have a great day. You too. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll continue this discussion. We're talking about the new gun laws uh, passed in Utah and uh, guns in general, gun violence in general on the program today. You're welcome to join us at upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. We'll continue this discussion following the break with Nika Algood from Moms Demand Action and Nancy Firehalden with Gun Violence Prevention Center of Utah. More following this. Before I Love Lucy became one of TV's most popular shows, Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz had to battle both a network and a sponsor. What do you mean nobody would believe Desi is my husband? He is my husband! Oscar Nunez and Sarah Drew Starr in I Love Lucy, A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Sitcom by Greg Oppenheimer. Next time on L.A. Theatre Works. Tune in Friday night at 9 here on Utah Public Radio. The first hundred days of a new presidency are a time for America to reset our national agenda. This is Brian Lehrer from WNYC. Join me, my guests, and listeners from around the country for live national call-in shows Thursday evenings for the first hundred days. How will we all get vaccinated, create jobs, fight racism, and restore our democracy? America, are we ready for the first hundred days? Thursday evenings at 6 here on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for joining us for Access U Time. Tom Williams. The Desert News reports that uh, guns once again were a contentious issue on Capitol Hill during the legislature's 45 day session. After several tries through the years, lawmakers succeeded in ending the permit requirement for carrying a concealed weapon in Utah. House Bill 60 lets any Utah resident who's 21 years or older and can legally possess a firearm to carry their weapon concealed without needing a permit. The legislature passed several other bills, including House Bill 216. We talked about that one uh, along with House Bill 60 with Representative Karen Lisenby um, uh, earlier in the program. And now 
we to continue this discussion, we bring in uh, Nika Algood from Moms Demand Action. Uh, welcome to the program. Am I saying your name correctly? Uh, yes, thank you. Okay, great. Thanks for joining us. And Nancy Farhalden with the Gun Violence Prevention Center of Utah. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us. Uh, Nika Algood, I should uh, mention Moms Demand Action. I believe that's part of uh, Every Town for uh, Gun Safety. Uh, yes, it is. It's their uh, grassroots uh, platform, uh, and I am a volunteer with the Moms Demand Action chapter here in Utah. Okay. Nancy Farhelden, uh, Gun Violence Prevention Center of Utah. What um, is probably there in the name, but uh, anything else you'd like to say about the, about the organization? Yeah, a lot of people don't realize our connection. So we are part of a group called States United for the Prevention of Gun Violence. And... Um, and the thing that's different about our organization is we are not a top-down organization. No one at the national level tells us how we need to um, change laws in Utah. We're free, because every state's different in its gun ownership, and we're free to work with gun owners and non-gun owners for the laws that, are, that make the most sense here in Utah. In Utah, we have very specific gun violence issues our number one and two issues are gun suicide and domestic violence homicide. Well, I definitely want to talk about those. I want to talk about the you know the national uh, gun violence as well. Uh, let me start with uh, Nika Algood um, uh, first, and then uh, and then have Nancy Farhalden uh, respond to House Bill sixty. This would uh, let any Utah resident twenty one years or older can legally possess a firearm, carry a concealed weapon without needing a permit. Essentially, drops the uh, permit requirement. Uh, what's your reaction? Well, our um, Utah's permitting process does several important things. Uh, one is that it gives um, prospective permit holders a brief overview of the laws about when they can carry concealed weapon. It also teaches the basics of firearm safe storage. Um, also, a few years ago, they added a suicide prevention module to the permitting process. And that suicide prevention model is very important. In Utah, 86% of our firearm deaths are suicides. And so clearly there's a lot of teaching that needs to be doing around helping gun owners understand uh, the suicide risk that having a gun in their home presents both to themselves and to their family members. Uh, so, Nancy Farr-Halden, uh, your reaction, uh, the, the Utah essentially dropping the permit to requirement? Or the... Yeah, Nika's absolutely right. And one of the sad things about uh, dropping this permitting requirement is I think last year, over 150,000 people, gun owners, saw that suicide prevention segment. And that's just going to go away. And if you talk to people who work in the suicide prevention world, they did put some money, you know, towards, you know, increasing it. But they said, you know, at most, they can sort of reach 3,000 people. Um, and so it's a huge loss in reaching out to the gun owning community and talking to them specifically about suicide prevention. I want to uh, bring in a, uh, a comment from, uh, from Barb. Um, responding to something that uh, Representative Lisenby said, I'll have each of you respond to this. Uh, so Barb says, uh, Hi, Tom. In my 33 year, uh, 
your career as a high school educator, the resource officers always said, if we were in a lockdown or crisis situation, uh, we were, and we were in the hall with a gun, we would be shot. It is a high-stress situation, and decisions are made in a fraction of a second. They won't know if you're the good guy or the bad guy. I believe guns do not belong in schools. That's uh, from Barbara. Uh, and uh, Representative Lisenby had, had uh, made the comment that um, she believed that uh, teachers being able to carry uh, firearms made uh, schools safer. Um, so let me turn to Nancy Farhalden first, your comment on this. Yeah. Uh, I, have you ever been in an active shooter situation? Uh, I have not. Yeah, I have not either, but I have talked to many people who have. And they will tell you, and especially gun owners who go into those situations, that before they were in that situation, they had an idea of what that might be like and what they might be able to do. And they came out the other side with a completely different idea. Um, you have adrenaline coursing through your body. Um, and the chances, I mean, even highly trained police officers will tell you, you don't always shoot straight. Um, so I totally agree with Barbara, the school teacher, that guns should not be in our schools. And, and asking teachers uh, to carry guns, and I know some gun-owning teachers who said, I don't keep my gun at school because, you know, what if I shot a student? I mean, it, it puts, uh, you know, I just, I don't think guns belong in schools. Nika Allgood, what do you think about this? Um, what Nancy said is supported by anecdotal evidence, and the shooting at the Marjorie Stoneham Douglas High School, there was an armed resource officer on site, and what he did was take shelter and freeze. Uh, he didn't um, protect the lives of any students there. And um, so I think rather than upping the ante of assuming more guns in schools will keep students safer, we need to look at what we can do to keep guns out of the hands of irresponsible people who might be a threat to others. Representative Lisenby also expressed a, a, you know, a, a feeling, a, a thought that I have definitely heard, uh, which is she, she felt like uh, this is a deterrent. Potential perpetrator you know, knows that uh, teachers might have guns. That uh, might be a deterrent. Let me start with um, Nick Allgood on this one. What, what do you think? Um, I don't think the data backs that up. Um, the United States has um, by far the highest gun violence rate in the developed world. And um, uh, having, on average, a gun for every citizen, which is how many firearms there are in our country, has not demonstrably made us safer. Hmm. Um, Nancy Farhalden, what do you think? Yeah, and I mean, the, the gun lobby likes to say that, um, you know, a good guy with a gun is going to stop a bad guy with a gun, but time and time again we see that doesn't happen. The good guy with a gun doesn't show up, and, and again, in that, in that moment with an active shooter, the good guy with a gun is going to look after themselves. They're going to, you know, take cover, and I think that's just a, a normal human reaction. Um. Would you like to talk about, uh, uh, so House Bill 216, we talked about that with the sponsor, Representative Lisenby. Um, maybe starting with Nancy Farhalden, what, uh, what do you think of, of this bill? Um, I think it's a mistake to put guns, uh, to encourage 18-year-olds 
um, to conceal carry. And, and I think, you know, it's driven by the gun lobby. They want to encourage more and more people at younger and younger ages to become gun owners. And, um, you know, we've, we've done away with the training now, so the training requirements. So you not only have 18-year-olds who are young and their brains are, I mean, anybody who's a parent, they're not fully formed. <laughs> they're a work in progress. And um, I, I think uh, they don't make good decisions all the time. I think, um, you know, they get angry. Um, and, you know, I have a personal story. I know a family um, their, their daughter's boyfriend encouraged her to get a gun for self-protection and took her to the gun range and showed her how to shoot that gun. And um, no one knew that she was depressed, and she took the gun and killed herself. Hmm. And I, I, we have a very high suicide rate here in Utah and easy access to a gun in that moment where, you know, somebody is having a bad moment, and especially a young person with a bad moment. I think is a bad combination. So I think that is is a mistake. Uh, Anika Allgood. Um, Nancy is absolutely right. In Utah, suicide is the leading cause of death um, for young people ages 10 to 17 and for young adults ages 18 to 24. And so we have to understand that anything we're doing to um, improve a no wrong word, the access of a young person to a firearm puts them at much higher risk for suicide. It's important to understand, in terms of suicide prevention, the difference between suicide attempts and someone dying by suicide. Um, when you look at suicide by firearm, uh, 90% of those suicides end in death. Um, guns are a uniquely lethal means of suicide. When you look at Every other means of suicide combined, only about 10% of those attempts end in a death. And so when we can um, reduce someone's access to firearms, um, we are potentially saving their lives. And we don't always know when they're suicidal. Hmm. Um, I, I want yes. to add something on that, too. Um, I know that when they ran that bill, Representative Lizenby um, said that she was concerned about young women on campus and that they have access to concealed carry to protect themselves. And I just don't think that in the majority of cases that's the way that's going to go. Again, in a, in a situation where you're being attacked and you don't know you're going to be attacked, I think the chances are great that that assailant is going to get the gun away from the young woman, and it's going to end badly, very badly. Hmm. So I, um, I don't, I don't think it's good. You know, I, I don't think that's a good argument either. Uh, Representative Lisenby says this is a narrow bill, a cleanup bill, and it would only affect uh, young people within 90 days of their uh, 21st birthday. Is that a accurate characterization of the bill? Yes, the bill the bill originally passed a few years ago, and this was just um, you know making another point. But I you know instead of reversing the bill and saying no, you need to be at least 21 years old, um, and really 21 years old, um, both of the uh, mass shooting um, shooters were 21 years old. I you know I I think connecting young people too early with guns is probably not a good idea. Mm. 
This be good. You made reference to some of the mass shootings. We've we've had um, boy a whole series seems seems to come just about every week uh, lately. Um, let me start with uh, Nick Algood on this. Uh, ask you both, what's the what's the solution? Do you think what are some measures that we could uh, put in place to to prevent or to reduce this gun violence? Um, first of all, I think we have to talk about. Um, during the pandemic, we saw a reduction in mass shootings, but um, gun violence as a whole did not go down in 2020. It actually went up. It's just that gun violence shifted. There were fewer news-driving mass shootings, but a lot more intimate partner violence. Um, and so I think we need to look honestly about the difference between gun violence events that get big news coverage, mass shootings, and the daily toll of gun violence in our communities, which is much more driven by um, intimate partner violence, domestic violence. Um, We have to understand, too, that preventing gun violence is a complicated problem. And so there's not a single bill that we can pass that will totally solve the problem. We need multiple things in place, but certainly the foundation of any attempt to reduce gun violence in our country needs to be a good background check system. The single biggest predictor for someone committing a future act of violence is have they committed a prior act of violence. So we need to look at people who have uh, felony violence convictions or class A misdemeanor violence convictions and say, those people should not have a gun and then have a comprehensive background check system. So we're doing a background check on every gun sale um, to make sure that those people who we don't think will be responsible gun owners don't own guns. Nancy Farhalden, uh, I want to pick up something that uh, Nick Algood said there, and then have you just uh, in general uh, tell me what measures you would uh, you would support, think would help. Um, Nick Algood made a point there that the, these mass shootings make the news, but we've got gun violence going on, you know, in homes in in towns across the the nation every day. Yeah, um, and the. The thing about mass shootings, I think, that is so terrifying is that they're happening everywhere. You go, well, I go to the grocery store. I go to concerts. I go to church on Sunday. Um, and these are the places that mass shootings are taking place. They're, they're random. They're, they're sort of, they really are a terroristic act because they, they terrorize people. So they are a small percentage. Um, they are um they tend to it tends to be a lot of people killed at once which is also horrifying um and um so yeah i you know so there there are two laws that i would um the first is extreme risk protection orders um 78% of mass shooters um when people go back and interview about that person there were red flags there were you know, um, there were things about them that gave people pause. And uh, in states where they have extreme risk protection orders, um, they have successfully, you know, fended off um, mass shootings. It's just, you know, so I think you have to have a way for people to say 
um, to be able to say this person is a danger, and we need to, and they and they have a gun, and we need to take that gun away from them for the safety of our community. Um, <clears throat> and the other thing I would like to see the the you know the primary tool that um, mass shooters use are assault weapons. And I, I would like to, I, we, are, we are for an assault weapons ban and a large capacity magazine ban. And, uh, you know, when I talk to gun owners about, you know, why, uh, why an AR-15, why do you need an AR-15? It's not a shooting rifle. It's not a hunting rifle. And the only answer I ever get is they're fun. And I just, you know, that really causes me to pause. I'm like, you're fun is more important than somebody else's luck. I think we need to think about that as a society. The other thing is that we have successfully banned machine guns and silencers, and you don't see those in mass shootings. (laughs) We know that that law works. We just need to enact it. We are talking, you've just joined us, we're talking about uh, guns, gun violence, new gun laws uh, passed in Utah this legislative session. You're welcome to join this conversation to uh, email upraccess at gmail.com. Upraccess at gmail.com is the, uh, is the place to, uh, to go. Um, and uh, we're going to take a break soon. We're talking with um, Nika Allgood with Moms Demand Action and Nancy Farr-Halden with Gun Violence Prevention Center of Utah. Early in the program, we talked with Representative Carrie Ann Lisenby, Republican from uh, Syracuse. Uh, before we go to break, I want to get in this email. This is from Mark. Mark says, as a firearms owner, including being a concealed carry weapon holder, the belief that removing the concealed carry weapon requirement and the training required to get a permit will allow Utahns to better protect themselves is narrow-sighted. To think that someone who is not required to get the training from a certified trainer will get it on their own doesn't understand the thought process of people. As a frequent participant to firearms ranges in southern Utah, I've witnessed a frightening number of people using a firearm that obviously has had little, if any, training on basic safety protocols. I've also spoken to several people that have uh, bought a handgun, to carry, concealed, to carry concealed for personal protection that have never taken it to the range to become proficient with it. Removing the concealed carry weapon permit requirement will be a problem for the state, even if proponents don't want to acknowledge it. That's uh, Mark. Uh, so, Nika Allgood, any uh, response to that? Um, I, I do think Mark is making an excellent point. Um, as... There's nothing that infringes on a person's right to own a firearm about requiring them to be skilled in the use of that firearm, to, to be able to demonstrate that they know how to hold it safely, store it safely, use it safely. And right now, um, Utah has no mechanism for requiring people to demonstrate that basic competence before they get a gun. Um, and I would uh, totally support a law that required people to demonstrate that basic understanding of um, the safety implications of gun ownership. Nancy Farr Halden, your reaction to Mark's comment? Yeah, I, um, you know, I think if you talk to the average gun owner in Utah, 
um, they would agree with Mark. Um, we used to require live fire training in Utah, and most responsible gun owners that I talk to say, yes, we want responsible gun owners. We want trained gun owners. We want people who know what they're going to do. Um, you know, we have unintentional shootings um, that are tragic They here in Utah, and without training, um, you're going to get more of that instead of less than that. So, um, and I think, you know, the legislature ignored gun owners on that issue because gun owners, about two-thirds of them, actually liked the permitting process and said, this is good, people need to be trained. If anything, they need to be more trained. How about live fire training? <laughs> um, and, um, and instead, they did away with it. Well, let's uh, take a break. We'll come back and talk more about this uh, subject following this break. Hi, I'm Natalie Gochner. I represent the Political Center. Join us for both sides of the aisle from KCPW, a weekly debate over politics, policy, and current issues facing the state of Utah, featuring voices representing the right, the center, and the left. Both Sides of the Aisle attempts to help you understand the important questions facing residents of this state while proving that Republicans and Democrats can sit in a small room and have a meaningful conversation. Tune in Thursday mornings at 10 here on Utah Public Radio. For the past two years here on Utah Public Radio, we've been bringing you a weekly dose of research and exploration. We call it undisciplined because we work really hard to take scientific studies, which are usually written in journals intended for people who share a background in a subject matter, and make them accessible for just about everyone. There are more than 100 episodes available wherever you get your podcasts, or you can catch us every Thursday morning at 1030 here on UPR. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and we're talking about uh, guns, gun violence, new gun laws in Utah. And uh, earlier in the program, we talked with Representative Carrie-Anne Lisenby, Republican from Syracuse, who sponsored uh, a couple of uh, bills on uh, guns. And uh, you heard her say she supported House Bill 60, uh, which would let any Utah resident who's 21 years or older can legally possess a firearm to carry a weapon uh, concealed without needing a permit, dropping the permitting uh, requirement. Uh, we're talking now with Nancy Farr-Halden with uh, Gun Violence Prevention Center of Utah and Nika Allgood with Moms Demand Action. We hope to hear from you as well. Your question or comment by email is very welcome. Upraccess at gmail.com is the email address. Upraccess at gmail.com. Upraccess uh, at uh, gmail.com. Uh, so I'll start with this with uh, Nancy Farr-Halden. Um, those who focus on gun rights, and you heard uh, from Representative Lisenby, uh, she said this in, in, earlier in the program, she characterized uh, the, 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 the mass shootings that we've been hearing so much about. Um, and I think probably would characterize maybe the, the entire problem is uh, an emphasis on mental health. We have a mental health problem, they say not so much a gun problem, because gun's just a, a tool. Uh, Nancy Farr-Halden, what do you say? Um, I think if you look at other uh, developed nations, um, there are mental uh, health problems in other developed nations, and they don't have the same kind of problem that we have. I think the connection is that we give easy access 
of guns to anybody, uh, regardless of their uh, mental health. And I think you also have to be careful with the mental health label. Um, if you talk to people at NAMI, they point, they're quick to point out that uh, most people with a diagnosed mental illness, um, that only 4% of those people are, are violent. Um, so I think what you have more likely, I mean, sure, once somebody goes and shoots, you know, 10 people, you're going to say, wow, something was wrong there. And you, you, you're right, something was wrong there. But I think these are often crimes of passion. They're often crimes of anger. And um, there, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a moment, um, and they had easy access to a gun because we make it very easy. Both of the mass shootings, um, the one in Atlanta and the one in Colorado, the 21-year-old angry young men had purchased their weapon within a week of carrying that out. So if we were more attentive and we had a way to better screen that kind of situation if we had, for instance, an extreme risk protection order where somebody had said, you know what, this person shouldn't, you know, it's, this is just, this is, this is not good for the community, um, then I think you'd be better off. Nika Allgood, what do you think? Um, I really appreciated that Nancy brought up extreme risk protection order laws. Um, because when we talk about who should have a gun versus who should not have a gun, often we talk about um, long-term things, like that someone with a history of violence long-term should not pass a background check, should not own a gun, but someone who's a responsible gun owner should be able to. But we have to acknowledge that mental health is more complicated than that, that if we include depression, for example, um, there are plenty of people who have an episode of depression in their lives, but for the majority of their lives are fine. And so we also need a tool that acknowledges that people can very temporarily be in a situation where they shouldn't own a gun. And um, extreme risk protection orders do that. They allow um, the police or a family member to say, I'm concerned about this person right now, um, and for their uh, firearm to be removed temporarily, and in order to protect those people's uh, um, rights to own a gun, to be, for them to be able, within a fairly short period of time, a couple of weeks, have a hearing to say, no, actually, I'm fine, you should give me my gun back, or the courts can rule, no, uh, we need to continue to be holding on to your firearms until you are demonstrably doing better. Um, Extreme risk protection orders in the states that have passed them have had measurable impacts in reducing their suicide rates. Here's an email with a, with a good point. This is Emily and Logan, who says, One bill the legislature passed this session that I think should receive more attention is House Bill 267. This bill allows an individual to temporarily restrict themselves from purchasing a firearm. For those who have depression or other mental illnesses, this may save lives. The discussion on this bill was incredibly moving, with multiple people who have been suicidal testifying that they would use such a restriction to protect themselves. Unfortunately, it's received little publicity, so not many people are aware they will be able to utilize this tool. That's Emily and Logan. Let me start with Nika Allgood on this one. What do you think about this uh, bill? 
Um, I really appreciate Emily bringing up that bill because it is an excellent bill. Um, when people are aware that they're struggling, um, giving them the option of being able to temporarily surrender their own firearms helps keep them safer. And um, we want people to know that that's an option for them if they're not doing well. Um, But we also have to recognize that sometimes people, when they emotionally are not doing well, aren't good at recognizing that. And so an extreme risk protection order also allows their family members to say, hey, we're really concerned about this person now. Um, Let's um, remove their firearms temporarily until they get some help. Nancy Parr-Halden, what do you think about uh, this uh, bill? I agree with Nika. The the voluntary lethal means um, is a good first step. It I don't think it will save as many lives as an extreme risk protection order would. Um, in studies in Connecticut and Indiana, they show that for every 15 protection orders um, used, um, put into place, a life was saved. That's a huge um, that's a huge thing. And this this bill does not have that kind of data behind it. I think, I hope it will save a life or two. I really do. But I don't think it is as effective. And, um, and I'm disappointed in our legislature. Um, the extreme risk protection order bill ran, not this session, but the previous three sessions. And um, I'm disappointed that they didn't do that because especially in Utah, um, the lives that the, the, that that bill, that policy is saving in other states are for suicide and domestic violence homicide, um, and it also is preventative for mass shootings. So I think that would be a huge step for our state to um, to pass an extreme risk protection order law. Uh, here's a uh, comment from John. John says, "Hi, Tom. Thank you for this calm, civil conversation." So often we hear loud voices, blame, and political rhetoric on this topic. I'm glad for the opportunity to hear points made by people with good intentions on all sides of the issue. That's uh, John. Thank you for that, John. Um, and that bring, brings up a point. That allow me to get into this. Um, let me quote Representative Walt Brooks, Republican from St. George's, from the uh, Deseret News. Um, during debate on uh, House Bill 60, he said he was skeptical there could be reconciliation between the two sides on this issue. And here's his quote. You know, guns are like beets. You either love them or you hate them. There's no in-between. That's Representative uh, Walt uh, Brooks. Um, and I guess on the national level, universal background checks being proposed uh, by President Biden. Uh, in years past, I think that might have been had a, had a greater uh, chance of passage. I mean, it may still pass, but I, um, I despair of anything passing these days. Um, so let me start with Nika Algood on this. Uh, just the, the broader point of, uh, uh, is there any point of agreement, um, do you think, any, anything that can pass? Um, I, I think uh, while Representative Brooks quotes that guns are like beats is funny, I don't think it's accurate. Um, uh, what the data shows is that... Um, The vast majority of Americans support background checks on gun sales. Even the majority of gun owners support background checks on gun sales. Um, As a nation, we agree that there are a subset of people who we really don't want to have guns, right? And that background checks are one 
tool in our toolkit to make sure those people don't have guns. Um, and um, I think there is a lot of dialogue that characterizes the gun violence prevention movement as wanting to take away your guns. And that's just not true. Um, uh, we, as a movement, are trying to uh, get laws that protect responsible gun owners' rights to own guns. But we, have, we want laws to recognize that, like any other right, the right to own a gun is not an absolute right. It um, uh, comes with boundaries, and it comes along with a right, the responsibilities. Nancy Farr-Heldon, what do you think on on this? Uh, any, you know, coming together on this, are there points of agreement, do you think? Absolutely, absolutely. I And I do, uh, like Nika, um, I, I take issue with Representative Brooks' characterization. Uh, I grew up in a rural community in a gun-owning family, um, and I have often said that um, I would go back to sports shooting if the, the gun... Uh, culture were to go back to the gun culture that I grew up in, which was uh, sportsmanship and safety. But there has been a complete turning away from that. Guns are sold now out of fear. Uh, They use fear to get people to buy guns to uh, sort of convince them that they need this to protect themselves. And, um, And that's not a, it's not a good place. And and also, the, the gun lobby has moved the whole culture away from training and responsibility and, um, you know, the, yeah, the responsibility that comes with gun ownership. So um, I know how to shoot a rifle. I, like I said, I, you know, if, if I saw the, <laughs> this uh, culture reverse and go back to sportsmanship and safety, um, I, I could become a gun owner again. Um, as far as background checks, um, you know, I, over 90% of Americans, gun owners and non-gun owners, say if you can't pass a background check, you shouldn't be able to buy a gun. And we make it entirely too easy in this country for people who can't buy background, pass background check to buy guns. About an estimated 20% of gun sales go through private sales without a background check. We're just making it easy for people who shouldn't have guns to have guns. And nobody thinks that's a good idea except our lawmakers, and mostly our lawmakers on one side of the political spectrum, the Republicans. The other thing um, that's interesting is that um, uh, because of our weak laws here in Utah, and this is a little-known fact, Utah exports twice as many crime guns as it imports um, because we don't have those um, background check. Um, you know, we haven't closed that private sales loophole. People will come to Utah from the states around us where they have closed that loophole. So I really think that the universal background check needs to be done at the federal level. It, it needs to be um, U.S.-wide. Um, that that makes the most sense, especially for that law. Well, we just have uh, about a minute and a half left, uh, so I want to give uh, each of you uh, just 30 seconds uh, to emphasize any point that you'd like here at the end. Uh, Sonika Algood uh, from Moms Demand Action, uh, you go first. Um, I would emphasize to people that they have power to influence their legislators. Um, right now, uh, at the federal level, 
Um, uh, a background check on every gun sale law has passed the House and is at the Senate. So I encourage people to contact their senators and say that they are in favor of a background check on every gun sale. Nancy Parhalden, uh, I'll give you the last word, 30 seconds. Yeah, I would just second what Mika said. I, people do not realize how important it is for your lawmakers at the state and federal level to hear from you in a loud voice on these issues. Um, they, they get a lot of pressure from the gun lobby, and they get a lot of pressure from their party to vote a certain way. Um, but if people come out and really with a strong voice and say, no, this is really wrong and we want to see this change, that can move an issue. Well, we thank you very much. Uh, Nancy Farr-Halden uh, with Gun Violence Prevention Center of Utah. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having us. Appreciate it. Uh, Nika Allgood from Moms Demand Action, thank you for joining us. Thank you for the opportunity. And we thank uh, Representative Carrie Ann Lisby joining us earlier, and we thank you for uh, listening and uh, for your excellent comments and questions. Thanks, everyone, for listening to Access Utah today. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard at upr.org.